Well, I don't know whether you were spooked by the sight of uh, a portrait being painted by AI and being auctioned by a famous auction house for millions of pounds only a few months ago. Well, could that be our creative future? Could plays be written by computer, maybe even music produced by algorithms? And can AI be taking our jobs in all our devices and have other ethical implications? Welcome to Nesta's Future Curious podcast with me, Nigel Campbell. Together, we aim to stimulate the parts other podcasts can't reach with ideas, provocations and glimpses into our future and explore how we can shift whole systems in a new direction and maybe shape brilliant ideas into practical solutions. Joining me to talk more about this is Georgia Ward-Dyer, uh, who works at Nesta's Futures and Explorations team, and Rebecca Fiebrink, who is uh, a senior lecturer in computing at Goldsmiths in London. Welcome, both of you. Thank, Thank you. So, Georgia, examples of creative AI have hit the mainstream in the past few years. Um, in 2017, I think you predicted that a creative duo of AI and artists would uh, win a Turner Prize. I, did that, did that did. actually happen? <laughs> I don't think... We quite got to the Turner Prize. Um, there was um, an, an art sale uh, through the auction house Christie's of a work ostensibly created by AI that sold for over $430,000. So I think that's hitting the mainstream. Um, that said, that's quite a controversial example. Um, there's quite a story behind it. I encourage you to read into it. It's fascinating, but it's more about, I think, IP um, than about whether it's to do with AI itself. Um, but I mean, there's a major exhibition happening at the Barbican next year dedicated to works um, created with AI. Um, there was uh, an exhibition in a gallery in India this year called Natur Mort, which was dedicated to works, again, created with AI. So I think we're definitely, definitely getting there. That's amazing. And thinking about those pieces... Um is that why do they command such a high price i mean is that is it about curiosity or because it was a genuine work of art or is it just about newness um i would say that i think particularly in the case of the christie's work there's something about it tapping into you know the hype that's around ai anyway and i think we're really drawn to really kind of dramatic stories about exactly ai creating a work from start to finish and being creative, which is something that we've always thought of as innately human. So it's quite threatening as well. Um, so I think that's probably what's what's creating the headlines. But that's not to say that there isn't a genuinely interesting story behind it, which is what I hope we'll go into today. Indeed. Rebecca, you research into AI and the creative process um, and uh, development of technologies that, that enable new forms of human expression, I, I guess. What kind of fields is AI now genuinely starting to creep into? I think AI is genuinely creeping into just about every every area of human creative practice and, and often in ways that aren't so visible, um, ways that are less obvious to the average person than the, the Christie's piece um, that we just uh, talked about. So, um, for instance, I work very closely with musicians, um, both musicians doing more popular music as well as people doing quite experimental music. Um, Few of the people I work with really want to use AI to create new songs or musical works from scratch, um, but they're very interested in using these algorithms as creative tools for, say, remixing 
content that they've made previously, giving them new insights into how they might work with this material, or they're interested in using AI and machine learning to um, interact with computers in a different type of way, where they're not just um, as the sole human creator telling the computer what to do, um, expecting that music or musical ideas will flow out of their brains fully formed, but using AI and machine learning as yet another tool in their toolkit to give them inspiration or allow them to prototype something more quickly. Um, and certainly that's the case in other fields such as uh, visual art, video game design, uh, all sorts of other things. Uh, of course, I mean, the, the history of pop music, uh, right from its its inception uh, in the 50s, has always involved some form of, of machines and, and, and technology, hasn't it? Absolutely. Right from the, you know, the, the, the sort of Korg uh, organs and all of those sorts of things. It's always been there as part of the toolkit. Absolutely. And I think we can go even further back to look at the roots of algorithmic influence over music. You know, you can look at Mozart and even earlier people who were using um, dice games or randomness to influence their compositions. Um, Ada Lovelace, who's often referred to as the mother of computer science, who was working with Charles Babbage in the mid-19th uh, century, she actually envisioned what I would call algorithmic computer music. Um, over 150 years ago, um, she talked about uh, she had a vision for computers as something that could enable us to create music that we couldn't create without computers. And of course, she didn't use the word computer, but uh, that's what she was talking about. That's an amazing thought, isn't mm, it? In the 19th really century, that was the, 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 the start of our conversation today. Absolutely. I do. I think just um, going back to, I mean, you, you mentioned pop music, Nigel. I think... Um, Obviously, we, we should differentiate between when we're thinking about musical practitioners where it's, you know, like it, they're, they're artists and that's their creative practice versus maybe music, which really does have a commercial aim. Um, and I think it was this year or last year, there were some stories um, about Spotify being accused of having fake artists on their roster um, because these names were appearing in Spotify, especially for sort of ambient music, sort of background type music, which didn't have any like record labels or other evidence that they were real people. And this, this yeah, basically led people to say, well, the music does sound kind of generated and generic. So for all we know, they could be using AI to generate this music. And I, I don't know whether we ever got a clear answer as to what, what was happening, but so certainly, you know, I think that could be possible. And that even studios who are, you know, working explicitly with that aim to, to create a pop, you know, a top 40 hit written by AI, uh, and maybe that will be possible. But um, it may not be the world's most exciting music. Well, I have heard <laughs> some music which they, uh, people have done experiments in that, and yeah. it, it seems incredibly clunky and kind of uh, it's like it's been put together like a jigsaw, and, it, and it's very obvious, isn't it? But I guess the nature of this machine learning is that it will learn from itself and get more and more sophisticated thousands of times faster than we can help it do that. Potentially. I think, you know, I look at machine learning algorithms as really... You know, they're not as intelligent, I think, as most people believe they oh, are. Um, I, they're really just a set of tools for uh, understanding or finding patterns in data. So many of them aren't going to just get smarter by themselves, but they'll get 
quote-unquote smarter the more data we have. Um, and the more data we can give an algorithm um, to show it, say, examples of successful pop songs, the more it's going to be able to find out about the structures that are common um, in those songs and potentially to generate new structures that are very, very similar to those songs but not exactly the same. So it's you know, there's nothing magic going on, and of course it's going to be limited by the data that it sees. Well, exactly. I, I mean, when AI generates a song or a piece of music or what have you, um, or, or indeed any other form of uh, form of art or creative endeavor, um, it, it's really, I suppose, just assembling or reassembling things that someone else has given it, isn't it? I mean, is that really creativity, or is that just um, blending stuff and and uh, and regurgitating it? I would, firstly, I would, I would say that although. Yes, I I see what you're saying about it reassembling. That said, I think it can reassemble things in unexpected ways, um, and sort of yeah, create unexpected moments, which then which become an important part of you know moving the, that through that creative process to something really exciting sounding or looking or whatever. Um, I think the question of whether that whether that's being really creative. I think we're going to come back and think about that in more depth, aren't we? That's the kind of that's the million dollar question. It is the million dollar question, really. It <laughs> is. Um, well, the visual arts uh, and music aren't in fact alone in this. Um, AI is elbowing its way into other creative professions as well, such as design and architecture. Uh, Earlier, I spoke to Mark Davis, head of design research at Autodesk, um, who have pioneered a new approach called generative design, which is being used to design everything from office interiors to NASA spacecraft. I would say that we're at the beginning of a renaissance in the availability and capability of design tools. So generative design has been around for quite some time, um, probably 30 or 40 years in architecture. It's been referred to as computational design. And the essence of it is being able to think about the problem rather than a solution. So in reference to being a designer who designs in a CAD tool, typically you would think about what you want to design and then you would figure out how to get that, whatever is in your head, into the computer. Generative design kind of flips that on its head, and you think about the problem, what the design constraints are, what kind of goals you want to meet, and you structure the problem to think about in the tool, and then the generative design software goes up to the cloud and thinks about a whole lot of solutions to present back to you. So rather than physically um, you know, putting something into the tool, you're really just focusing on the problem rather than the solution. So currently, the main use of artificial intelligence in the generative design workflow is around the algorithms that do, um, that basically design the shapes. So, but there's a trajectory of AI um, and research that's ongoing um, that will really start to build what we call a knowledge base of solutions that have been made before by other designers and by other domain experts that as somebody sitting down in front of the tool, you'll actually benefit from. So rather than having to learn the software, in a way, the software learns you. The more you use it, um, the better it becomes and um, sort of the more powerful the tool can become. So as that AI develops, um, it'll be personalized to how you design and, and the types of things that you design, and it'll get better and smarter the more that you use it. One of the most valuable things is the computer can basically crash 
dependent variables against each other. The human brain can hold about five or six dependent variables before it gets lost and just can't consider um, the calculations. The computer doesn't have that limit. So it can take literally hundreds of dependent variables against each other and um, calculate out what the optimal results would be. And that's the most powerful thing for, for a designer is being able to explore a lot larger design space. So rather than thinking about a single solution and a single design and maybe an iteration of a design that you're working on, you can get hundreds of variations of a design and really open your mind up to solutions that you might not have considered before. Yes, so uh, for the last uh, year and a half or so, we've been working with NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab down in Pasadena and really trying to understand two things. One, how can we lower the weight of the payload for them? Because every gram of weight we can drop means they can put more scientific instruments on board. So um, scientists are really excited about that. They have a baseline weight for the craft, and anything we can shave off of that means more experiments can, can go into space. One of the other benefits of working on what we call a problem definition rather than working in a sort of linear engineering fashion is that once you have a definition of the problem, different domains can participate, different types of engineers uh, um, or designers can participate at different parts in the process and it becomes much less linear and more fluid and interactive. So, for instance, a typical project might start out with an industrial designer coming up with, um, you know, the sort of the form of a shape, then typically it might, if it's a, um, a commercial product or a consumer product, it might go to a mechanical engineer next to do, um, you know, the PCB board layout and any electronics fitting and some ergonomics. Um, and then it gets passed or thrown over the wall to the next domain, which might be manufacturing engineer who knows what materials are available and what factories are online. With generative design and a common problem definition, all three of these domains can participate at the same time, and the industrial designer can actually get um, pretty good knowledge into mechanical engineering and into manufacturing engineering with no expertise in those areas. It takes a bit of retraining to think about the problem and not the solution. So I think this could possibly be an area of instruction in universities in the future because really... Um, being able to design a problem and do the problem definition design and what we call a design space is going to be a new field um, that people need to learn. Um, I think, again, where AI comes in is that without having the domain expertise in some of those areas, you'll get a lot of intelligence um, sort of out of the box. So if the system is trained up with your skills as a designer, other designers on your team skills, the collective skills of the designers in the company, and then skills from other people outside your company also using the tool. That all combines so that um, as a designer, I benefit from a lot of other people's expertise when I don't actually have that expertise myself. So I may be able to get a sort of good enough electrical layout in a product with having no electrical engineering skill whatsoever. So I think that's sort of on the horizon. Um, so in our in our work with generative design over the past four years, we've proven out a number of use cases in automotive. We've taken a lot of that learning and applied it to the domain of aerospace. Um, I think in the future, we'll be pushing that um, uh, into other areas of design. Um, and you know, as I said, as the AI develops and gets more personalized for individual designers and teams of designers, I think it really opens up uh, um, whole other domains of, of design for us. 
Mark Davis there talking about yet another creative field where AI is making its mark. Um, Joining me in the studio uh, is Georgia and Rebecca. Um, Georgia, do you think there's any creative field where that's maybe safe from the bots or or will it creep into absolutely everything? Um, Well, I I mean, I think as Rebecca said earlier, it's already it's already present and 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 could be could be more present and more pervasive across so many creative practices um I, I don't see why you know theoretically it shouldn't be part of of any creative practice including ones um using the body which you might think would be sort of uh, one step away from the sort of virtual world but um what do you mean using the body well i mean this rebecca's the expert here um oh. rebecca has designed well many amazing tools um but one in particular called Wekinator, very cool name um which which enables users to really quickly and, and, and easily create a gestural interface um, to create their very own machine learning sort of model. Do you, want to, you should be telling us about this, Rebecca, not me. fascinating. <laughs> sure. So Wekinator is really a tool. You can look at it as a tool for rapid prototyping and creation of gestural and embodied interfaces. And before I started using machine learning to do this, I and many other people would use programming to do this, right? Programming is still the standard way of making a new piece of software um, with a computer in most domains. Um, And if you want to program a computer to recognize you waving hello to somebody or doing a jumping jack, um, that turns out to be quite hard because if I, you know, if you were an alien from another planet and I tried to communicate to you what it meant to wave hello, it would be very difficult for me to give you a mathematical equation describing how my hand waves over time. Instead, I would just demonstrate it to you. I wouldn't even try to describe in English how my hand moves. I would just show you like I'm showing you right now in the studio. Um, And machine learning allows us to communicate to computers in much the same way. So we can give computers examples of how we might want to move. Or if I'm building a musical instrument that responds to my hand waves, I might demonstrate the kinds of sounds I want to happen as I wave my hand. Um, And that's a very natural way for people to communicate things that involve the body. We can talk about um, people having embodied or tacit knowledge that um, is much easier to communicate to people through demonstration and hard to talk about in words, even if we're experts in dance or, or movement. Um, and so Wekinator allows people to build systems that respond to movement by um, the designer, the human designer, showing examples. And that designer doesn't have to be a computer programmer. They don't have to have real math expertise. Um, They can be an eight-year-old kid. And it's really easy for them to give some examples. And then the machine learning really, just like any other machine learning system, finds the patterns in those examples and tries to make sense of them so that you could show it new gestures in the future and it will understand them in the context of the, the gestures you've shown it in the past. That's extraordinary. And and so that works in, in gesture. And I suppose gesture is a really intrinsic part of a lot of art forms, whether that is dance, um, whether that's perhaps playing musical instruments. That's really fascinating. What about the visual aspects of visual arts? Do you think, do you foresee a time when that the equivalent might work through through vision, whether that's through you know the much vaunted Google glasses and things, which haven't never seemed to have made an appearance. But do you, do you foresee that there'll be other sort of cousins of that application? 
Definitely. So I have a, a couple things to respond to there. So first of all, um, the algorithms that Wekinator uses don't know anything about gesture. They're actually quite general purpose. And if you wanted to build a system that um, used computer vision and, say, generated sound from images or generated, I don't know, new video game levels from images, you could use the same type of setup. Um, second of all, you know, Visual art is another one of these domains where it's very hard to describe in words or in mathematics what a painting looks like or what an idea that you as a creator might have for some visual work. But it's very easy often to provide examples. Um, and machine learning allows creators to curate examples from things like um, galleries of great art or Google images or sketches that somebody's made themselves. And so again, uh, machine learning algorithms that can learn from examples, allow people just a much more natural set of interfaces to communicate some kind of idea that they have. I, that, I mean, there are so many important and interesting points in what you said there. Um, Wekinator is such a great example, particularly, as you said, because anyone can use it, as you said, down to an eight-year-old child. Um, and I think that's one really important aspect about this, um, that I feel as though uh, it, it, is, it is the case that machine learning could... Uh, you know, help more people um, develop a creative process in a much more natural way, especially ones that involve computer and machine intelligence. Because, pre by the way, you know, artists and creatives have used computers, as we said, all the way back, decades and decades. But I, I don't think it's ever been so natural and immediate and sort of fits as part of the human creative process in that natural way. And then the other thing that um, I wanted to pick up on was what you said about there being a kind of general purpose setup that then can have multiple applications. So I think, yeah, as you say, you know, you might have one that's set up for sound and an image, but then can be applied for so many others. Uh, so it's really about a tool that's both easy to use by by really such a broad range of, of people and also can be can be useful in so many different kinds of creative process. Well, I suppose that raises a couple of really fascinating fundamental questions, which is what is the nature of creativity? Um, uh, maybe you guys have a, a, some thoughts on that. And I guess the other thing is, because this might blur the different forms of creativity, do you foresee a time when someone is uh, due to this new technology, a multiple creative equally across, you know, the visual arts or music or, or what have you. Are we going to see a blurring of the lines? So, so one thing about when we say what is creativity, and we've just been talking about how machine learning tools might make a creative process happen more naturally. Um, so this makes me think about there's one artist called Mario Klingerman who's a visual artist who's very well known in the AI art world and he creates incredible like I would say portraits but they're just the the, the wrong side of weird to really be called portraits but they're absolutely amazing um, and he's talked about his creative process so he created his own software to generate images and then um, and generates them according to parameters that you know he's chosen. And then he, he goes through and like selects which ones he thinks are worth showing. And he's talked about this before. You know, there are so many stages to that creative process. But the first one is, you know, him creating that software. Um, and then there would be him setting the parameters for, you know, which kind of visual space he wants it to explore. Um, and then there would be um, the sort of curation moment where he's looking through all the outputs and selecting which ones. 
Um, and then obviously it's showing the work. But I mean, those those quite are quite similar to other forms of creative process that don't involve computers or software at all. Um, and especially that curating one, that's such a crucial part of an artistic process, right? Um, so I think, you know, maybe that's one way to think about creativity is like this this process with different stages. And and that, that leaves the question open as to, you know, which stage can machine learning be useful at? And it's not necessarily always just the dumb generating you know it can Rebecca can yeah tell us a lot about the kind of to and fro of a of a creative process that is with machine learning right where to start there (laughs) (laughs) um I mean I often like to think about you know the the creative process there there are good models for this that you can read about um design thinking is is one such model that's quite popular for instance and so you can think about um ideation as often the first stage in making a new work whether that's a, a new piece of visual art or you know a, a building a bridge as, as an engineer um and a lot of AI getting attention right now helps, you can think of it as helping with the ideation process where you might allow, um, you might use AI to help you explore a space and discover new ideas in that space that you hadn't thought of as a person. And that's quite similar in many ways to the use of randomness or chance in um, algorithmic processes in art and music going back centuries. Um Another stage in this process is prototyping. So once you have an idea, once you have some notion of what you want to build, can you actually instantiate that? Can you bring it into the world so you can look at it or you can hold it in your hands or you can actually start to reason about it in more depth? Because when an idea is just in our head, um, we're not very good at evaluating whether it's good or not, um, at identifying ways that it could be better. Um, And so another thing that machine learning can help us do is make that process from going going from an idea to a prototype much faster or more accessible to more people. So we've got AI in the background increasingly of a lot of creative endeavor. Um, As a viewer, as a consumer of an appreciator of that art, should we be told what percentage, what, what, what's gone on in the background? Should, are purists going to emerge where if AI has been involved then they just don't want to have anything to do with it? It's a labelling issue. What, what are your final thoughts on that, you two? Um, I think in, for the art world, I'm absolutely sure there'll be some movement, you know, the backlash against using AI and it will be like the, the stuckism, you know, from the, the YBA period of art. It will definitely happen. Um, in terms of what percentage, you know, is kind of, you know, buyer beware for an, for an artwork or a creative work. I mean, we do currently, you know, in museums, we tell people what the media are that have been used. We say, you know, oil on canvas, blah, blah, blah. But we don't need to give a percentage um, I don't know. It might di- it might differ, you know, for for something like yeah, a visual artwork to something like a performance. Maybe in a performance, we'd like to know. But I think it becomes so hard to disentangle who's doing what in that kind of area. I agree. I think a lot of the tools that are going to be coming out for creators in different domains um, are going to be used in in such different deep ways uh, in the creative process that you're not going to be able to say, well, this this work was 50% created by AI. Um, And, you know, maybe for some things, if you're talking about a song that's been completely composed by an algorithm, um, I can imagine that people would want to know that, right? We have, we form these relationships with our favorite artists in many cases. um, And it, 
you know, I can imagine people being upset to find out that your favorite artist is actually a computer. At the same time, there's, uh, you know, Vocaloid performers that are huge in Japan where everybody knows that their favorite performers are made up artificial agents and they don't care. That's part of the appeal. So I think it's it's a little bit more complicated. It's a brave, uh, it's a brave new world. <laughs> Well, that's fascinating. And and so where's it going to go in the foreseeable future in 2019? Here we go. Predictions on the table. Where, where are you most excited about where this is going to go? I'm most excited about AI getting into tools that make creation easier and more accessible to more people. I think um, looking at folks who aren't programmers, aren't really into computers per se, um, there are already some really great tools on the market that um, use AI to make creation easier. For instance, um, Isotope is a, a music technology company that's already using machine learning to help human creators in the music studio do things like mixing and equalization where you know these are tasks that most people don't find very enjoyable that's not a great exciting part of their creative process um, but AI can help automate that and get people to say a mix that they're a happier with in a short amount of time. Um, also in London, we have companies like Juke Deck who are making um, soundtrack creation for videos easier for video creators. So somebody who might be making um, videos and putting them on YouTube, if they want an original soundtrack, they're going to have to pay a composer. And that's a long process and it's expensive. But uh, Juke Deck can make it possible for them to have a creative hand in that process. Maybe it's not going to be amazing music. Maybe it is, um, but that's okay. Often, if you want some background music for your video. Um, on the programming side, on the technical side, there are a lot of exciting developments happening to make machine learning tools more accessible for more people. It used to be that you had to have a PhD in computer science in order to get started with the, the cutting-edge algorithms, but um, people are making some great um, off-the-shelf tools that say now a first-year undergraduate computer science student can use. And I, I think in a couple of years, it's going to be, again, the eight-year-olds who are going to be able to play with things pretty easily. I think I'm probably more at the eight-year-old end <laughs> than the PhD end. I think also um, what I'm really excited about, I was just thinking about, do you remember, I think it was this year, earlier this year, um, everyone was was sharing uh, the hilarious, like, generated Harry Potter um, it was something. It was called something ridiculous, like Harry Potter and the Large Pile of Ash, and it was a text that was ostensibly, you know, J.K. Rowling's lost Harry Potter that was AI generated, and it was hilarious because it was so absurd and weird. Um, and I think I'm excited about um, us going from like that being the public profile of AI generated content um, as as crazy and weird and a novelty to actually it just being an accepted part of how we make stuff. And maybe there will be a, a weird a weird year, but. Um, but I think it will be, yeah, I think it will be something to, something to look out for. Thanks for listening to Future Curious. If you liked what you heard, please do share the podcast and rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us grow our audience. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or visit nesta.org.uk forward slash futurecurious to find out more and check out the other episodes in the series. Thank you and stay curious. Future Curious is a Chalk and Blade production. The producers were Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter and Lily Ames. Original music is by Jed Flood. <laughs>